Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. A question, who's never heard of Sesame Street? An answer, no one. And to that end, I am more than excited and honored to have a conversation with one of the driving forces behind this iconic, beloved, groundbreaking television series. Dr. Rosemarie Trulio is Senior Vice President of Curriculum and Content at Sesame Workshop, and to that end, oversees content development for television, publishing, toys, home video, and theme park activities, as well as for all new show production. Needless to say, she has one hell of a resume. Briefly, Rosemarie's also an author. Her recently published book, Ready for School, and the documentary, No Small Matter, take a long, hard look at early childhood education, which shockingly is the most overlooked, underestimated, but powerful force for change in the United States today. She's co-editor of G is for Growing, 30 years of research on children and Sesame Street, and has written numerous articles published in child and developmental psychology journals, and has presented her work at conferences in the U.S. and around the globe. Before joining Sesame Workshop in 1997, Rosemarie was Assistant Professor of Communication and Education at Columbia University's Teachers College. She earned a PhD in Developmental Child Psychology from the University of Kansas and a BA in Psychology from Douglas College, Rutgers University in Jersey. She's been inducted to Rutgers Hall of Distinguished Alumni and is a member of the Women's Hall of Fame at KU. So let's meet and get to know Rosemarie Trulio. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Rosemarie, when I do these introductions for these bold-faced names like yours, does it ever give you pause to think, God, what I've done? (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much. And yeah, and I think it's when interviews like this that I do say, wow, I, I, I am having amazing impact on the lives of children and families. And it's very humbling because I'm just a, I'm a small part of, of the content that we create, but an important part because Sesame Workshop's mission is to help kids grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. And that mission means that the content we create is curriculum-driven, And it is in fulfillment of a very critical educational, societal, or health issue in the lives of of kids and families today. And it's been an amazing experience, been there for 23 years, and I'm always learning and growing. And that's exactly what we want kids, to be learning and growing and to be lifelong learners. But when you were learning and growing, and I mean more in the recent past, obviously that might not have been on your front burner that you would like to work there. What did you want to be when you grew up? That's really interesting because um, I was always involved with children. So as a young child growing up in Hoboken, New Jersey, you were raised by people on the block, right? So the moms would be out their windows and looking down at the street corner and the moms would be talking back and forth while the kids played on the sidewalk and hung out on the stoops. So that was life back in the early 70s. And so I quickly became the neighborhood babysitter. So I was always involved with children. And at first I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then when I 
went to uh, college my freshman year, I realized, well, maybe medicine is not for me. Um, so I quickly got involved with a developmental psychologist doing research. Her name was Dr. Carolyn Roby Collier. And I enjoyed it. She was studying the role of memory in, in infants. But what I quickly learned is that if I was going to go down the road of developmental psychology, I wanted to do applied research. I wasn't that interested in basic research. So when I was looking for um, grad programs, the University of Kansas, there was a center called the Center for the Influences of Television on Children. And they did television research. And a lot of it had to do with the educational impact of Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. And in what year was this? So I went to grad school in 1983. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked. I was like, wow, people are studying the effects of television on children. And so that's how I got involved in television research and never dreamed I was going to uh, work at Sesame Street, but their postdoc was after she completed her postdoc there, she became the vice president of the education department at Sesame Workshop. And so I got to know her. And, and so when I came back to New York, I, my first teaching position was at Teachers College. I, I stayed connected to her and the research. And when she left the workshop, the position became available and I applied thinking, well, this would be a wonderful career opportunity. And the rest is history. As I said, I've been there for 23 years. You know, I'm curious about the effects of television on children. For the most part, it was, when I think about it, it was more like negative effects. You plop a kid in front of the TV and that would be the beginning and the end of it. And not that people necessarily were searching for educational things to watch. You know what? That's how the initial uh, children in television research started out. It started out looking a lot at the negative effects, looking at the effects of uh, violence, uh, violent content on aggressive behavior in in young children. But what was wonderful about my mentors at KU is that their research was really focused on, we can't look at just the amount of viewing. We must look at the type of viewing, and that there are positive and negative effects of television viewing. And that's when they started focusing on what does educational television look like? What does that mean? And that means is that it's got to be driven by a curriculum. And do those curriculum-driven educational shows that are trying to address an educational issue are they effective? So they were trying to look at, at television in more through a, a positive lens to see if this was all true. And mm-hmm. their research shows that content does matter. There are differential effects depending on the, your television diet. And that remains true to, to, to this day. So when we're looking at the effects of television, we need to look at your child. We need to look at the content and we need to look at the context of that television viewing experience. Because with educational programming, the beneficial effects are increased if there's an adult present. And what's wonderful about Sesame Street is that it brings in the adult viewer. It doesn't exclude the adult viewer. Right. But what's also interesting about Sesame Street as well is that there are adults on Sesame Street That's correct. And they're so user-friendly, right? 
as opposed That's to... That's correct. So the Sesame Street characters represent children. Right, of course. And it also... This, the, the adults are representing caregivers. It goes back to what No Small Matters movie is all about, that it does take a village. We need to support families with children. So the adult human characters are those neighborhood village support characters, and they're modeling how they interact with our Muppet characters. They're modeling for parents how you could address these issues that are coming up from Elmo and Abby and, and Big Bird. So Sesame Street is, is very much like a parent. If you could, you could look at Sesame Street as a parenting program. Mm, mm-hmm. It's almost as if it should be mandatory viewing everywhere, because even though people say having children and being a parent is a natural act, that's really not true. No, it's not true. And Parenting is not easy. And we go to school, we we learn various skills for our careers. We get a driver's license, you have to study for the exam. But where is the preparation for becoming a parent? And we know that these early years are so important. And we need to be able to help parents learn how to do their job, their role, right, in terms of building their children's brains, right? We know that those early years are so critical and parent-child interactions are so critical. But the question is, who is helping them with the how-tos? So there's been always, there's always criticism. Like when you go to conferences, they're saying parents need to do this. And and then teachers say the parents need to do more of this. Well, who is helping the parents? So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, Ready for School, because this book is a resource. It's not a book that you read cover to cover, but it's a resource filled with tips and giving parents an understanding of developmental progressions. What is my two-year-old supposed to be doing? What is my five-year-old supposed to be doing? And when you think about what this documentary is, is, is showing is that we need to have more of these resources to help the adults in children's lives so that we can seize these everyday learning moments to help them build their brains, right? And, and build the skills necessary to get them ready for school, but more importantly, to get them ready for life and to be lifelong learners. It's 2020, Rosemarie. Why do we need this book now? I mean, duh. We haven't mastered this. This isn't a natural act. You would think so. But I think that, you know, it's much more recently that we've been having a better understanding of brain development and a better understanding of these foundational years. And so that's why this book and this documentary are are shedding light on the importance of these years. For so long, People would just say, oh, they're, they're kids and they're going to be fine. Like, uh, you know, why do we need to invest in, in early childhood? Because they're so resilient. They're resilient, but they, don't, uh, they didn't really understand the role of brain development and the importance of stimulation through parent-child interactions and the role of trauma on, on the brain, right? And how the neural networking and how with stimulation it grows, but then without a stimulating environment, 
these networks begin to prune. They, they, they break down and they go away. And now you're building your life on a weak foundation. So that's why these foundational skills are, are so important. I think in terms of parenting, it's really interesting because there's different kinds of parenting that some parents will feel like, I, I know what I'm doing. Right. But it's so interesting that when you then sh- show them what are those meaningful everyday learning moments, they, they have this aha moment. Oh, I'm sort of doing this but I could do so much more. I didn't realize that I am my, my child's first teacher. Like they get nervous about that label. I'm a parent, I'm not a teacher. Well, you're, you are your child's most important teacher. Of course. You're playing that critical role in helping them learn these foundational skills, understand what's going on around them and getting them ready for a school experience. Yeah, but I got a lot on my plate. I work. I have to take care of my household. Yes, I may be married. My husband does help out. Or I may be a single parent. What do you want from me? Um, I don't want much more. Um, that's really that's a really great question because parents are overwhelmed. They're they're incredibly stressed. And then we haven't even talked about this pandemic. I mean, let's let's you know put that on top of it. Hello, yeah. parents are working at home, and they're also they are indeed playing the role of a real teacher, right? Because of all this online learning. Um, and then you have all of the other household responsibilities. So that's why at Sesame Workshop, we've been trying to help parents. Well, you need to do all of these routines, right? These everyday moments. There are ways of integrating your, your young child into this to make them learning moments. So you have to cook, right? So cooking is all about science. It's math. It's literacy. You're going to be bathing your child. Well, bath time is filled with such wonderful opportunities. You can make stories during bath time using your imagination and creativity. It's a great opportunity uh, to do a science lesson about sinking and, and floating. You have to do the laundry. Well, laundry is all about sorting and then matching. These are math skills. So hmm. how do we shed the light and say, you, you are exposing your child to a whole child curriculum through these everyday moments. Without realizing it. Yeah, without realizing it. So how do we shed light and say, you know, it doesn't take much more. And think about when you are having these interactions, you're bonding with your child. There's humor. You could probably be laughing. Think about movement. I mean, that's another one is like we're all inside our homes now. And so turn on the uh, music and have a dance party. Turn your house into an obstacle course and get your body moving. I mean, these are fun learning activities that are so easily integrated into your everyday life. So on the one hand, here you are for all the years that you've spent doing curriculum and content and Sesame Workshop, but then something underlying saying, yeah, how great this is, but, right? And it's the but what prompted the book as well as the documentary? Well, I think the but is how do we get this word out? But more importantly, how do we, so for the documentary, the to get the word out that we need to do a better job in funding early childhood education. Okay. We need to do a better job in getting the word out that 
this is a societal issue. And, and the investment in early childhood education is helping us be a better society, right? The money you put into early childhood education, the return on the investment is huge, right? Because we know that education is key. And, and the skills that you learn during these early years, there's a lot of talk in the movie about these executive function skills, right? Being able to manage your emotions, being able to focus your attention and shift your attention and to, and to plan. These are life skills, but these skills are developing rapidly during the the years of three to five. And that's why it's a critical window. We continue to learn these skills and they're also associated with being resilient. So think about the crisis that we're dealing with now, a pandemic. We're all talking now about the resiliency skills. How do we foster resiliency skills? In terms of the book, my frustration is that parents are bombarded with parenting books. And I wanted to give them a simple resource. Show them what is a school readiness curriculum. Yes, it's about content knowledge, but it's also about these processing skills, these cognitive thinking skills. And how do I give little bits of information and give them a, a glimpse of developmental trajectories? Because so often parents are looking at their two-year-olds and saying, well, I really want them to be more like a four-year-old, right? that hurry <laughs> child syndrome. So mm -hmm. that's not what this book is. This book is to give you a snapshot of what is typical development during the age of two across different kinds of skills, literacy, math, social, emotional skills. Like a good example is parents want two-year-olds to share. That's not developmentally appropriate. Huh. can't share. They shouldn't share. They're not ready to share. So giving them an understanding of what is appropriate and what kinds of skills you may want to foster and develop, but in an age-appropriate way. That's really fascinating. Again, you just, you're projecting onto your child that, that what you think they should be doing. Yes, let Bobby play with your doll for five minutes or whatever. You know, I, it, it, so, right. the, so ready for school is also almost a, a primer. It is a primer. It is a primer because when you talk to kindergarten teachers, their view of what is being ready is not being readers already. <laughs> That's another thing. You know, kindergarten now is the first grade. Yeah, they right. want children, right? They want children to come to their classroom excited about learning, being curious, filled with questions. Being able to take safe risks and not have everything being done for them so that they could be engaged in their learning. And when they make mistakes, knowing that that's okay, that's how I learn. I learn through making mistakes and not having a meltdown, an emotional meltdown. And if they are having a big feeling, do they have the skills to manage this big feeling so that they could then move on and continue in, in, a, in a, a new activity or in the same activity. This is what teachers want. And what parents tend to focus on is, oh, my child needs to know their ABCs and they have to be reading and they know all of their... Yeah, because it's a good reflection on you as the mom and right. you as the dad. 
But that's not what's what's most most important. I'm not saying that, listen, literacy and math are critical skills, but you know what? Your preschool child is already a mathematician and an engineer (laughs) and, and a scientist. So this book is about start to look at your child not through your own eyes, but through your child's eyes and to mm. co-engage with them and understand the importance of play because your child is learning best through play. And how do you scaffold their play to integrate these learning moments through their play? And that's that's the whole basis of this book. Well, isn't that also quite the basis of Sesame Street? That's correct. That's correct. And that's why it's called Sesame Street, Ready for School. <laughs> right, right. Did the book and the film get born together? No, 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 no. They were totally uh, independent uh, of each other. So I was contacted by the producers of the film because they learned at the time what we were doing with Cookie Monster. So every season on Sesame Street addresses a critical need in the lives of children. Mm -hmm. It was a whole child curriculum that gets revised on an annual basis. It's a very dynamic curriculum, which is why I said from at the beginning of, of our conversation that I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly learning and evolving. Right. And adjusting. So, mm-hmm. and, right. So what happened was we learned that these executive function skills, which is a big part of the movie, and I'm thrilled that, that it is because I think parents need to have a better understanding of what that is and why these skills are so important. We decided to to revise our curriculum to put these skills at the core of our whole child curriculum. Because without these skills, you can't teach the academic skills. You can't teach the social emotional skills. You can't teach the health lessons. And when we decided to um, do this, the writers said, well, Cookie Monster is one of our most impulsive characters. He's not reflective. He doesn't pause. He doesn't think. He just goes straight to those cookies. And we want to use him as a way of teaching these executive function strategies to young children. And I have to say, I paused and I got a little concerned and I went, oh my goodness, because Cookie Monster is going to fail. He's going to try the strategy and And it ain't going to work for him. It ain't going to work. And I didn't know if we could pull this off. And so you saw it as very risky. I did. I I have to be honest with you. I thought it was very risky. And then we brought in the advisors, the the, the people who study these strategies and teaching these strategies and reinforcing these strategies in young children. And it came back that children need to be exposed to a toolbox of strategies because there is no such thing as one strategy will always work. They, it's all. they need to always try a strategy and, and it fails, have another strategy. And Cookie Monster is the best character to show this trial and error of learning. He failed, but he doesn't give up. He right. perseveres and he right. tries another strategy. So when they found out that Cookie Monster uh, was being used this way, they asked, can he play a role in this um, this documentary, and so that's how I I got involved, and and I did this wonderful scene with with Cookie Monster. What in the course of your career 
as the vice president, senior vice president of curriculum, have you had to struggle with? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, that's that's a that's a really that's a really good question because um, there, are, I mean, there are always struggles. But I'm I'm so fortunate to work at Sesame Workshop because of the mission, and everyone wants to do their part in creating content that makes a difference in the lives of children. So I think the only struggle I have is when you create a television program. The show has to be engaging. It has to work for children. And the tension between the creatives and the educators is an interesting one. And it's something that Joan Gans Cooney uh, realized from the very beginning, which is why she uh, created what we call the Sesame Workshop model. She said, for us to be effective, the show needs to be funny, it needs to be engaging, it needs to be relevant, it needs to talk to kids, and it has to drive these educational lessons. So you have to work collaboratively. No one voice has the power to like get their way. When you get to these thorny struggles or obstacles, you have to see things from everyone's side, the educator's side, the developmental uh, researcher's side, the producer's side, and problem solve together. But most importantly, the, the real expert is the child, the children, which is why we do so much testing with children. And we learn how children react to our story ideas before we produce them. And I think that's, um, so it's a struggle, it's an obstacle, but once again, you learn so much from these discussions and and sometimes mishaps. We mm-hmm. make mistakes and we have to start all over again. So how would you assess how Sesame Street has changed over the years since you've been there? Uh, well, first of all, what hasn't changed is our core mission. Mm. What hasn't changed is uh, the dynamics that you see on the street. So it's still live action and you have um, the adult characters interacting with our characters. What hasn't changed is the diversity and the inclusion and the kindness on, on our street. What has changed is the formatting of the show and the curriculum and what we're putting our uh, focus on uh, because the needs of children are changing. And the media landscape is changing. So for us to survive in a competitive landscape, we must be open to changing how we deliver the content of Sesame Street. And give us some examples of that. Uh, One example is we were what we call um, a magazine format where you would break up that street story and take it across an hour. And it would be interrupted by originally it was called those commercials, those, those animated segments or those live action films that would teach a very specific curriculum uh, goal. During my tenure, one of the, th- the first things that um, I tried to do is to bring that street story together because we know that children love a linear story. Why are we breaking it up? Sesame Street back in 1969 was modeled after the media landscape of, of a variety uh, television show where you would have these little skits and vignettes. Right. Well, 
1997, the variety show wasn't there any longer and children were following longer stories. So that whole idea that they don't have an attention span to, to watch a whole story was, was false. So that was one big change. Now the, the show has, it's, a, it's down to a half hour. It's no longer an hour because children are watching their media environment are these half hour shows. So an hour was, was, was too long. And we have what we call block formatting. So we have uh, blocks of content, so the street story and different kinds of formats. So there's an Abbey format, there's a cookie format, and there's an Elmo format. But we've connected all of these formats through a topic. So there's a theme, you mean? A theme? Yes, a theme. So so make it a relevant theme and you can get that whole child curriculum through the theme, but coming at it through different stories and, and different goals, but within the same theme. To take no small matter and give this a wide audience, how does that get done? That's a really good question. I think this this film should be mandatory. Uh, It it should be mandatory. I think that every school should be showing this. And I'm talking about, you know, daycare centers, preschools, they should be showing them, showing this film to, to all of their families. But I think it needs to go beyond just exposing it to families. I think every stakeholder and policymaker and cities should be having mandatory viewing because this is a societal issue. This is not any particular family issue. So yes, we need the families to have a better understanding of their role in their child's development, but they need to be supported by these larger community circles. And we must invest in early childhood education. Parents need help. And I I can't, I mean, I think that the documentary did such an amazing job talking about the importance of our understanding of brain development and the importance of investing in the developing brain of young children, because this is our future. And if we don't invest in our future, the societal issues are going to continue to go on and we're never going to get it right. And I think that's what the documentary does. It sheds light on the importance of why we must invest in our young children for our future as a country. It almost begs the question, for God's sake, what took so long? Yeah, I know. It's very frustrating. And, and those of us in child psychology and and in child policy, it does beg the question, like, why is it taking so long? And when you see the film at the end, you see that when you poll people, uh, it cuts across politics. Republicans and Democrats and independents are all saying we must invest in early childhood education. So this is a no-brainer. The question is, why are we not? Well, it also, based on what's going on, not only pandemic-wise, but in terms of political Black Lives Matter and statistics that are coming out all the time about how much money is spent in commu- for schooling in communities that are largely white, as opposed to communities made up of mostly people of color. And, you know, it's 2020 again, like I said in the beginning of our conversation. You know, come on, man. 
Yeah. Come on, man. I agree with you. I agree. To switch gears, when you got hired at Sesame Street, on some level, did you feel like you died and went to heaven? Oh, absolutely. I never, I mean, I never dreamed that I would have this position. I, I, um, you know, it's something that you could aspire to and say, you know, that would be nice, but I'll never get that job. And I wanted to leave academia and I was consulting with Sesame Workshop on, on different uh, projects. And when I found out that the job was open, I decided to find out more about it. And they, the person who was hiring said, oh, we're pretty far along in the interview process and we have a couple of candidates and I'm sorry, but you're just a little too late. And I said, but you've not made the final decision, correct? And uh, the person said, no. Uh, and I said, Could just give me a shot. And the person gave me a shot and I got the job. Uh, so <laughs> in, in many respects, it's sort of like, well, I guess this was, this was meant for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never dreamed I would be there 23 years because, you know, but there's no other place. I mean, this, this is just an amazing company and the, the work that we, we are doing for children and families is just so rewarding. And, and as you said at the beginning of, of our interview, I mean, Sesame, millions and millions and millions of, of children watch the show and are now parents themselves. And Yeah, what a legacy. And we're not just domestic. We're around the globe. So For sure. So, Rosemary, what do you see for your future? Oh, my goodness. What a question. Well, I hope that I will continue to make an impact. On, on children and, and families uh, through the content that uh, we create. What's wonderful about Sesame Workshop right now is that uh, we're creating more and more shows. So there's a great show out there called Esme and Roy, which shows how children are learning through play and how they are learning these self-regulation strategies for when they do have these big feelings. We've created two wonderful shows with Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, one is a uh, pre-coding show for preschoolers called Helpsters. Another one is Ghost Rider, which is uh, about exposing children to different types of literature to get them more excited about, about reading and other shows in development. You have a job for life, don't you? I, I hope so. I hope so. And then the other thing that I, I really enjoy is a work in, in themed entertainment because that's an example of bringing the adults together with the child in a shared experience. And think about those wonderful bonding moments uh, when, you, when you go to a live show or a theme park and you are co-engaged and laughing and having just a great time, but knowing that the, the show or the park is designed for you to be able to also integrate these learning moments. So once again, learning through play, that's, that's my big thing. That's, I, I just hope that parents understand that play is not a four-letter word, that play is the work of children and how do they embrace play to make it an educational or learning experience. You know, that's really an emotional response. I so get what you're saying. And and as I personalize this in terms of having watched this as my children grew up and now I have granddaughters and 
what's not to love about it? I agree. And you know what? I, I well love when I think about this. Um, it does bring uh, big emotions. And, you know, when I'm on the set and I'm watching production, I don't even see the puppeteers behind the puppet. Those puppets are real. And I think that's another thing that makes Sesame Street unique is that children look at these characters and they see them as real. They are their friends. And we know from developmental psychology, when a child connects to a character and has what we call a parasocial relationship with that character, that character is my friend. We know that the learning is exemplified because and amplified because it's coming from their friend. And that's just what I think makes Sesame unique is because it remains a live action show in a world of animation. So it holds holds a unique place. We celebrate our 50th uh, anniversary. Um, We're working on 51, which which will debut in the fall. And we're currently working on season 52. It takes about a a year to 18 months to uh, do a season. How many episodes a year are there? How many originals a year? I think it's um, up to 35. Wow. You got a lot of work. I think it's something like that. So Great. Well, Rosemary Trulio, I've learned a lot. And I am so grateful for what you do. Thank you for getting the word out. It's so important for parents to hear what we talked about today. We are all very grateful and we're indebted. What would a world be without Sesame Street? It would be awful. I agree with you. This world needs Sesame Street. More than ever now. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 